Hey there, welcome to the Creative Classroom Podcast. I'm your host, John Spencer. I'm a former middle school teacher, current college professor, and I am passionate about seeing teachers transform their classrooms into bastions of creativity and wonder. And so on this podcast, I share ideas and strategies. I tell stories about what worked, but also those big epic fails that I have made along the way. I I interview experts who share their insights and all because I truly believe that teachers play a profound role in helping their students reach their creative potential. And so that's what this podcast is all about. And today we're talking about something called neurodiversity. We explore what it means to shift from a focus on learning disabilities to one that focuses on learning differences. Um, What does it mean to embrace neurodiversity in a way that helps students find their hidden potential, especially creative potential, in, uh, in a way that also reflects their neurological identity? Um, How can we shift from a deficit mindset to one of empowerment and opportunity? And really, this is at the heart of what I believe. It's why I think that students with a special education label um, deserve to have access to project-based learning. It's why they deserve to be empowered as learners. Um, And so that's what today's podcast is all about. It's this notion of Uh, neurodiversity and really seeing the hidden potential in all of our students. So when I was a middle school teacher, I had a student who was largely nonverbal. He had a speech impediment and had also experienced selective mutism. Um, He also had the label of ASD or autism spectrum disorder. And when he arrived to my journalism class, his teacher's aide warned me, good luck getting him to write, much less talk. In our first week, we did a show and tell, and he brought an old school Nintendo game. He said nothing during the round robin activity, but he did set his item on the table. From there, we shifted into our geek out blogs, which is like a 20% time genius hour kind of thing. And he stared at his computer screen for the first day. In the next day, though, with some help and some sentence frames and some prodding and, and, and a few supports, he finally began to write. And it took him an entire class period to write a single paragraph that was riddled with spelling and grammatical errors. To my horror, I saw his blog post had been published instead of saved as a draft, right? And there were 10 comments below it. I scrambled as quickly as I could to look at what was written. And to my surprise, classmates had left positive comments on his post about video games. Over time, he shared his hidden genius in terms of comparing, contrasting, and analyzing games. He shared patterns that he saw and cheat codes that he had discovered to old retro games and the games that he'd played on his phone. His classmates suddenly saw this hidden genius. Over time, they invited him to join them on their Xbox Live games, and he joined our brand new eSports team a few months later. And so Javier, uh, I changed his name to protect his identity, eventually fell in love with programming and is now a software engineer. And I shared this story because it's a reminder of the need for neurodiversity. 
I first learned the term neurodiversity back in 2011. And I had read this book called The Power of Neurodiversity. And for the first time ever, I felt like I had a language for the beliefs I had developed already as a teacher. Neurodiversity is a concept that embraces neurological differences as a natural variation in the human genome. This perspective views conditions like autism or ADHD or dyslexia and other things like that, not as deficits or disorders, but as unique variations of the human brain. The term coined in the late 90s advocates for celebrating these differences as part of the human experience. The neurodiversity paradigm shifts from a focus with individuals in terms of what they can't do to what they can do, emphasizing their strengths and their abilities along the way. The term neurodiversity itself originated in the late 1990s, and it's credited to Judy Singer, an Australian sociologist who herself is on the autism spectrum. Singer sought to shift the paradigm of how neurological differences are perceived in society, again, toward this strength-based perspective. So that's the notion of neurodiversity. And I think it's important that we value this concept of neurodiversity if we really want to embrace student voice and choice, if we really want to have empowerment. We have to look at all of our students and say, what can they do instead of only focusing on what can't they do? And here's part of why neurodiversity matters so deeply to me. When I had that student who struggled in terms of speaking and had a hard time reading and writing, I had felt that before, that, that nervousness about speaking. I still do sometimes. As a kid, I had to go through speech therapy and I was always self-conscious of my voice. In fact, I, I still feel that way if I ever listen to a podcast episode or a sketch video that I edit. I feel it. I have to fight my own negative self-perception about my voice, right? And I'm gonna share a brief story from my own life from college. When I was a freshman at a community college, I, I had a really hard time with college algebra. After we took our first test, I walked up to the professor and said, I don't think I can do this. I need this for my major, but I didn't even finish the first three problems. Let's talk about it. Can I get you a coffee, he answered, as he packed his items into one of those roller carts that resemble, resemble the, the small luggage that we wheel around. Okay, I answer. As we sat down, he handed me the rubric showing me how he graded the first test. And then he said this, notice that I don't grade each problem. I choose one randomly and then move on to a different one only if needed. But what if I got that single problem wrong, I asked. It's not about speed, it's about problem solving. If you got it wrong, I wanna figure out why. Was it a simple computational error or a lack of procedural knowledge or a failure in conceptual understanding? He added, what if you choose one I didn't even get to? Is that a zero, I asked. He laughed and said, oh, oh, you're serious. 
I would only choose a problem you completed. He then pulled out my paper from his folder and scanned it. Do you have a hard time remembering dates, he asked. How'd you know? I responded. When you were a kid, did you hate doing long division, he asked. I still hate it, I shot back. Listen, I want you to go to the academic resource office and get tested for something called dyscalculia, he answered. Later, I had the official diagnosis. I felt like I was finally known. I could squeak by college algebra and leave this behind. But when I met with my professor to talk about the accommodations, he said, John, this isn't a disability. This is a different way of thinking. There's a hidden advantage to being slower with computational fluency. I've already seen your ability to think divergently and problem solve in unique ways. You're also not crushed when you get things wrong. You second guess yourself and that leads you to double check your work and fix your mistakes. You see the conceptual and contextual sides of math that other students don't see. And all of that, well, it's your hidden strength, and that is a part of dyscalculia. I earned an A in that class. It was the first time I had ever earned a top score in a math course. And to my surprise, I found myself signing up for statistics and fell in love with that subject and then took more statistics I enrolled in calculus, and it was even more of a challenge for me, but there, again, I earned another A. Decades later, I still have moments when I hate my dyscalculia. I just had to redo an entire four-hour class period because I thought it was a synchronous night, and it's actually asynchronous. I struggle to remember dates. I curse the simple two-factor authorization that my university uses because I often type the numbers uh, in incorrectly, right? Uh, I remember, I mean, I, I just, these things are hard for me. I'll just say that. Like, multi-step directions in spatial areas are, are, are hard for me. But I can see the context of math. I can make connections between seemingly unrelated mathematical ideas. I thrive in probabilistic thinking. And as a professor, I have a different way of viewing quantitative research. When I embraced the notion of neurodiversity, I internalized the reality that there is nothing inherently wrong with me. My dyscalculia is no different than my propensity toward creative thinking, my love of music, or the color of my eyes. It's part of who I am, and at times, it's exactly what this world needs. So what does it mean to take this strengths-based perspective of learning differences? Well, traditionally, learning disabilities have been viewed, viewed through a lens of deficit. And here, people focus on what individuals struggle with or can't do, and it often leads to negative stigma, to a sense of limitation, and to a feeling among students of, I, I can never be good enough, right? 
But the shift toward neurodiversity encourages us to see these differences as a part of the spectrum of the human condition. It's a part of the way, pardon me, I just hit the microphone, that the brain functions. And here we view diversity as different and different as a gift. See, neurodiversity is a hidden gift in a world of AI. In a world of machine learning, our students need to become really good at what AI can't do and really different at what AI can do. I recently, I guess it wasn't too recent, about half a year ago, uh, published a book called The AI Roadmap. And in this book, I talk about what students will need in an adaptable world where uh, things are going to be disrupted due to machine learning. And a key part of it is to, to think outside of the algorithm. And if you think about a chatbot, it uses natural language processing. And, and, and that NLP process, right, it, it basically is designed to mirror the human mind. And so it's going with uh, the, the algorithms are based on the most common uses. And so you end up with something that is convergent, and yet what our world often needs is something that is divergent. AI can lead to solutions at, at, in some cases, I would actually say in many cases, that are cliche. They tend to f fit into what's most common, what's most popular. Um, you get the idea. But a neurodivergent thinker can have a totally different process that diverges significantly from the algorithm. When that person leverages AI and then uses their own processes and thinking and creative insights differently, the end result is often more practical and creative than what the AI would generate on its own. So what I would argue right now, if we think about it, this is something that our world needs. And Students have always needed to embrace their idiosyncratic, you know, identity. Um, every one of us has something about us that's different. But that has become even more necessary in a world of machine learning. So what can we do about this? There's a few ideas. One, we can have inclusive curriculum design. Adapt curricula to include the focus on students, student strengths. Um, you know, use UDL, which I'll be talking about here in a second. Um, consider ways that you can allow students to pursue their passions and interests through things like that Geek Out uh, blog project that I mentioned or Genius Hour projects, things like that. Um, in many cases, I've seen that students uh, with certain identities, certain neurodivergent identities, um, can do really well in terms of a hyper-focus well, this is a great chance to lead into hyperfocus, And I see this a lot with students who are on the spectrum. I see it a lot with students with ADHD. It's actually a hidden gift, that ability to, to hyperfocus. And things like a geek out blog, Genius Hour Project, Makerspace, they allow for it. The next idea is to include strength-based IEPs. So yeah, we need to have IEPs that focus on goals and, and include moments of deficiencies, but make sure that our IEPs include success stories. Make sure that they focus on and include moments where someone can celebrate the great things that they've done. Um, I used to work with someone who would um, 
bring in the student into the IEP meetings, and she would specifically focus a, a ch large chunk of the meeting on what is this student doing well? What are they good at? Because she knew if, if she could build that student's efficacy, the belief that I can do something, then that would help lead to success in the areas where they were struggling. The next idea is to give students access to success stories. Let them know examples from books and videos and guest speakers showing how neurodivergent people can be successful. They're not an exception to the rule. We can also make sure that we have a truly accessible learning environment, whether it's having uh, assistive technology, having a sensory uh, friendly space, whatever it may be, it's the notion of making sure that accessibility is at the forefront of our design. But the last idea that I want to bring up is this notion of empowering students with UDL or Universal Design for Learning. Um, if you're curious about this, I did a podcast episode with Katie Novak on this subject, and it's uh, a great, I mean, she had amazing insights, and so you can go check out that episode of this podcast. Um, but the idea here is to make all of your scaffolds available to all students. It's the notion of providing voice and choice in every area of the learning. So that's the, the concept of, um, you know, giving students choice in terms of the format, choice in terms of how they demonstrate their learning, choice in terms of their approach to what they're, they're doing, but also a choice in terms of the scaffolds. And it's the notion of empowering students to self-select the scaffolds. If you're not familiar with UDL, it's an inclusive educational framework that seeks to remove barriers while keeping the learning challenging for all students. And that challenging piece is huge. This is why we want to make sure that all students can have access to project-based learning, to Genius Hour, to, to Geek Out Blocks, to any of those types of things where they get to have voice and choice in their learning. Now, I want to point out that sometimes students will have you know, challenges that they will need to address, right? So um, things like PBL can be really high in terms of cognitive load, and some students with lower executive function will need scaffolds to help them through it. Uh, I did a blog post and a podcast specifically on how we can reduce cognitive load within project-based learning. Um, also, you know, something to think about is, uh, in some cases, students might need additional skill practice. Well, we can do workshops during PBL where students can be in, in small groups, um, do some additional skill practice, and pull up their skills so that they can participate well within the project. But the bottom line is that when we design in a way where students have access to scaffolds and supports, and we give them voice and choice in their learning, we empower them to embrace their neurodiversity and to achieve at a higher level. Student choice is, in the end, the concept of neurodiversity is a much needed shift in how we talk about and view learning and neurological differences. 
It encourages a more inclusive society that values and supports all forms of neurological diversity. By moving away from this deficit mindset and embracing an approach built on neurodiversity, we can create environments where every student has the opportunity to thrive. This paradigm shift is not about being politically correct. It's about fundamentally changing how we understand and value human variation. And it's the recognition that when students can be who they are, we can be excited about who they become in an uncertain world. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Would you do me a favor? If you enjoy this podcast, would you leave a review on um, Apple Podcast or on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcast? That would mean the world to me. Um, also, think about subscribing. So leave a review, subscribe, and then also just tell someone about it. Word of mouth is still one of the best ways to get the word out about things like podcasts. So again, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and go out and make something awesome.